to talk this morning about the discipline of simplicity, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse uh, 17 to 31, looking at this story of the rich young ruler. So if you want to find your way there, I want to just talk to you a little bit about Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus was born in kind of a backwater town. Uh, Nazareth is so small that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere. Uh, it's a little bitty burg in the middle of basically nowhere. And if you lived in Galilee, as Jesus did when he was growing up, uh, you were not among the spiritual elite of the country. To be spiritual, you lived in Judea. To be re- really spiritual, you lived in Jerusalem. And Jesus was from Galilee of the Gentiles, even though he was born in Bethlehem. Uh, when he began his public ministry, as far as we know, his only possessions are a tunic, uh, kind of this you know, underneath garment, and then a cloak, the outer garment that you wore over the top of that, and maybe some sandals. We don't know if he had sandals. Um, his meals and his lodgings were dependent on the grace of other people as he traveled around. And as he ministered, he moved through life with very definite goals and in a timeline and definite places that he had to be. In fact, one of the great stories that I love is begins this way. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had a definite plan and a purpose and a, and a timeline. He knew that at the, at, after three Passovers of his public ministry that he was going to be crucified in Jerusalem, so he needed to be there. And yet Jesus, as far as we know, never kept a day timer. He didn't have a, a crackberry. I mean, sorry, a blackberry. Okay. Um, he didn't have a written to-do list. Okay. He didn't have any of these things that we in our modern sort of entrepreneurial, managerial culture deem necessary uh, for success in meeting your goals in life. Right. And yet he accomplished everything that the Father wanted him to accomplish in just three years of ministry. In fact, what's the last thing Jesus says? It is finished. I'm done. I accomplished everything that the Father wanted me to do. And yet, apart from the the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, you have no evidence that Jesus is ever stressed, that he ever feels just totally overwhelmed. He just seems to always and everywhere be exactly where the Father intends for him to be, doing exactly what the Father has told him to do. Now, those characteristics bear very little resemblance in most respects to my life. If I don't have my planner, I don't know what I'm supposed to do (laughs) on any given day. I feel lost without the thing. Uh, If I don't have my cell phone, I feel like I've lost my connection to the universe, right? Uh, When I went off to college, everything that I owned fit in the back of my pickup truck. When I moved here, everything came in two 26-foot trucks. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Now, I've added a wife and four children in there, and that adds a little complication to life, as you might expect right? When a single man uh, moves out of his uh, ratty apartment, what he does is he takes the flat sheet off of his bed, piles his stuff that he's taking with him, 
in it, ties up the corners, and leaves. Okay? Uh, and when he gets married, he thinks, oh, this will be fine. We'll get two sheets. <laughs> Little do you know. <laughs> okay? You're going to have far more stuff than you ever know what to do with, right? Um, and I have my life a lot of times planned out in really fine increments. You know, at 725, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, whatever, I'm going to do this. And and you probably operate the same way. That's a very American way of operating, right? Um, and if, if I'm not done here at 1045, some of you will be looking at your watch, okay? Or I guess it's 1145, but regardless, you'll be looking at your watch, okay? Some of you thought that was really important, and I missed that, too. Um, all right. <laughs> um, and... And on top of that, you know, we have email and all kinds of, not just relational complexities, but just all kinds of little things that are supposed to make life easier, but in the end, wind up making life way more complicated. You know, you have a cell phone so that anybody can get a hold of you anytime, day or night. And that's great until you realize anybody can get a hold of you anytime, day or night. <laughs> right? Um... And I bring all this up and describe my life versus Jesus' life because I think that it's the life that a lot of us wind up living, and it's a life that is characterized by what one uh, writer that I read uh, called affluenza. Now, not influenza. That's what you get in the winter, okay? Affluenza is just this kind of disease of the soul that you get from from the presence of affluence and wealth, in your life. I have a 54-inch television in my living room that I did not pay for, but I really enjoy. Okay? My parents gave it to me as a gift. And it's fun to watch, right? I'd never buy a 54-inch TV on my own, but, you know, the hunting shows come in really good on it, and so I like that. (laughs) Okay? When you watch the Super Bowl, you're right there. It's great. Um, But... Even my life is surrounded by the presence of comfort and of stuff, right? To be wealthy in America is to be wealthy beyond the imagination of most people who have ever lived. And to be poor in America a lot of times means you only have one car and that you live in an air-conditioned place. Our dogs and cats eat better than two-thirds of the world. And that does things to you when you live in a culture that's like that. And all of a sudden, you start to realize that your stuff starts to lay hold of you and starts to have attachment to you in ways that it's not meant to have. And so I want to look at the the discipline of simplicity and look at this rich young man uh, because... The reality of it is is that if we are going to be Christians, if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, then we need to learn how to say with Paul, one thing I do, right? One thing I do. Not many things. There's one thing. And for me to live as Christ, not for me to live as TiVo, you know, for me to live as cell phone, for me to live as text message, you know, For me to live as money, for me to live as my business, for me to live as my spouse, for me to live as my child, for me to live as Christ, is one thing I do. So let's look at uh, Mark chapter 10. I hope you guys can hear me on this. Uh, I've got a little bit of a cold, 
and I'm missing my wireless. I can't wander. Um, everything in me wants to walk around right now. All right. Um, and as he was setting on, out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now this story is called traditionally the rich young ruler. Uh, you don't find out in Mark's account here that he's a ruler. You have to find that out from Luke. And you don't find out that he's young. You have to find out that out from Matthew. But when you read the synoptics together, you get the idea that this is the rich young ruler. Uh, very likely, he is a man who has inherited his wealth. Uh, young and wealthy do not normally go together, right? Unless you have inherited money. Um, and Mark tells us three things about this young man that make it pretty clear culturally that he's an admirable young man. He's a spiritually-minded guy. He does three things that you did not normally do culturally. Number one, he runs up to Jesus. Now, if you were a man of honor, you indicated that in, in Jesus' culture and still in the Middle East today— if you are a man of honor, you do not run. Servants run. Children run. But men walk. And the slower you walk, the more dignified you are. Okay? You kind of lumber along, right? Uh, it's not the 100-yard dash. It's the 100-meter mosey, okay? And you, 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 but this young man runs up to Jesus. He is eager to see Jesus. And so he disregards what would be culturally approved for him as a man of status. And he runs to see Jesus. And then he does something else interesting. He kneels down in front of Jesus. 
even though he is a man of status and Jesus is a guy who is wearing all the clothes that he owns and who is depending for his next meal on whoever is going to take him in and feed him. Here's this rich man. He comes running up to Jesus and he kneels down as a way of giving Jesus honor. He's a humble guy. And he asks a profound spiritual question. He's a spiritually minded young man. He's admirable in many ways. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think uh, this young man probably, like I say, has inherited money. And so he's thinking about spiritual things in the same way. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And... Jesus has a master of taking people's statements, whatever they say, and turning them in a way that he can teach them about what's really true. And he picks up on one little word. He says, why do you call me good? You call me good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus is trying to make it clear to the man that human relative standards of holiness and goodness don't cut it with God. You know, how many of y'all had a teacher when you were in school that uh, graded on the curve, right? Any of you? Okay, I had some. Uh, Sometimes I was really glad about that. Sometimes not so much, you know. Um, But a lot of times people tend to assume that that's how it is with God, that God grades on the curve. And, and they don't know how good you have to be necessarily, but however bad you have to be to be in hell is somewhere to the left of them. Right? And, you know, they say, well, I'm a good person. Well, what does a good person mean? Well, it means more wicked than me. Okay? Because uh, I'm a good person. And Jesus is trying to make it clear that there are not any good people. As I've said repeatedly in the last several months, there are not any good people. The world does not divide between good people and bad people. The world divides between bad people and Jesus. He's the only good person who has ever lived. And that's what Jesus is trying to make this young man understand. Why do you call me good? Because, see, he thinks he can do something good and that that will gain him entry into heaven. He says, so why do you call me good? No one's good except God. It's also a reference to Jesus' true identity as God. And he's trying to make the man see that if you want to get eternal life, you've got to go through me because I'm the only one who is good. I'm God. And you've called me good teacher, and that's right, because it's exactly who I am. I'm good because I'm God. But God is holy, and he does not grade on the curve. You can't do enough good things because there's not because God does not judge on the number of good things that you have done. He judges this way. Have you done one evil thing? Yes. Okay, you're in hell. God is holy. He's also gracious, and he makes a way where nobody has to go to hell, but more on that later, okay? Um. He said, but that is the standard. It's an absolute standard, not a relative one. And he wants to make it clear to the man that God doesn't judge on a relative standard. God judges on an absolute standard. And you either hit 100 out of 100 or you fail. It's that simple. Uh, the young, young man really is not on board with all that yet. And so Jesus 
um, answers his question a little more directly. And he says, well, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, there's some things I want you to notice about these commandments that he gives. Uh, they're, they're all commandments that have to do with what's called the second table of the law. First table has to do with your relationship with God. These have to do with your relationship with people. That's why Jesus said the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two commands. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? First half has to do with God. Second half has to do with people. He says, here's the commandments. And these, these commandments are easier, in some sense, to obey than the ones that have to do with God, and they're pretty easily verifiable. Have you stolen anything? No, I haven't stolen from anybody. Have you murdered anybody? No. Have you slept with anybody, not your spouse? No, I haven't done that. Okay. Um, but I want you to notice what Jesus leaves out. He leaves out all the commands about God. He leaves out the command about the Sabbath also. And he puts in a commandment about not defrauding. Now, what's defrauding somebody? Uh, that's stealing and lying at the same time. <laughs> okay. Uh, see also Bernie Madoff, all right, uh, if you know who he is, all right? That's defrauding. And the reason I think Jesus throws that one in, because it was covered in the Old Testament. You couldn't do that. It wasn't one of the ten, but it was one of the uh, 603 others that you couldn't also do. And Jesus throws that one in because that is one that is something that rich people are more prone to than other people. And he knows this guy's status, and so he throws that one in just for good measure. And he's hoping that the guy's heart is soft enough to realize that, you know what, even though these are the easy ones, I haven't totally lived up to all of those either. But it's not. And he says to the guy, and, and Jesus says back to, I mean, the guy says back to Jesus, I'm sorry, uh, well, I have kept all of these from my youth. And I think what he means there is real simple. Uh, at 12 years old or at 13, uh, a Jewish boy would go through a ceremony called the Bar Mitzvah. Uh, it means the son of the law. And on that day, you receive the right as a Jewish boy to read publicly from the Torah, the scriptures. And you become a son of the law, and you are regarded from that day forward as being accountable as a member of the Jewish community for keeping the law of God. And so he says, I have kept that ever since I made the promise that I would at my bar mitzvah. And, and Jesus is impressed. Well, that's good. He's an admirable young guy. You know, in fact, if you met this young guy, you would, a lot of you um, moms and, and dads that have um, young daughters that are uh, about that age of wanting to get married, you'd think, boy, here's, a, here's, a, here's the kind of dude I want my daughter to marry. He's pious. He's humble. He's eager to know spiritual truth. It doesn't hurt that he's a man of position. And that he's wealthy. I mean, you know, somebody's got to take care of me in my old age, and this will help, okay? Um, you know, but Jesus, and Jesus loves this man. In fact, if you read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the only place where it says that is right here. 
says that Jesus looked at him intently and he loved him. Because he sees that this young man is, is an admirable young guy. He is pious. He is eager to know spiritual truth. He's devoted to keeping the law, but he's about to miss eternal life. And Jesus is going to point out to him how he's going to miss it. And he says, he says, well, I'll give you a command, and if you obey this, you'll have eternal life. He says, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me and the young man is floored because Jesus has just asked him for everything that gives meaning and value and purpose to his life without his money he probably loses his position without his money he loses his influence his social status his power. He loses his standard of living to go follow a guy who has no place to lay his head. But that's the kind of request Jesus makes of all of us, is it not? You're going to give up everything and come follow me, or you can't come. He asks Jesus, and Jesus responds, and the man walks away. He would rather have his stuff and be in hell than have Jesus and be in heaven. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to talk with his disciples. He turns around to those guys and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are completely shocked by what he has to say. They cannot get their arms around what he has just said. How difficult it's going to be for the rich to get into heaven? Are you serious? Really? Because in Judaism, wealth is a sign of God's blessing. In fact, if you read your, uh, your Deuteronomy, which I would encourage... Uh, read Deuteronomy and read about the blessings of the covenant. God says this. He goes on for pages like this. Blessed will you be in the country, and blessed will you be in the city, and blessed will you be in your houses, and blessed will you be in your fields, and blessed will be the fruit of your womb, and blessed will be your flocks, and blessed will be your herds, and blessed will be your springs, and blessed will be your sons, and blessed will be your daughters, and blessed will be your fields and trees and vines, and you will have blessing. And a big part of that is if they obey the covenant, they become wealthy. And so Jews did the math on that, and they said, we got a wealthy guy, blessed by God. Makes sense, right? And they, said, they didn't have, had an extra biblical proverb that said, those whom God loves, he maketh rich. And Jesus takes that cultural value and turns it on its head. And says, it's going to be difficult for guys who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And they go, huh? What? Have you not read your Bible? I mean, read Deuteronomy, Jesus. Come on now. 
it says that riches equals God's blessing. So how is it going to be hard for these people to get in? And he says, and Jesus makes it tougher. I always love that. You know, when Jesus erects a barrier that you can't get over, he makes it higher. <laughs> okay? So he makes it really clear how difficult this is by your own effort. Oh, you can't clear a three-foot barrier? How about an eight-foot fence? <laughs> okay? Uh, and he says this. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Now, the camel in Jesus' day is the largest animal that there is in Israel. You know, the elephants and whatever, they hear, hear about those kinds of creatures, but the camel is the one that most people would have commonly seen. And the eye of a needle is the smallest opening that people are familiar with. Now, let me just assure you of this. If you, if you get a smaller-than-average camel and a larger-than-average needle, you're still not going to stick the animal through the opening, right? Um, I did this one time with Awana kids that I was teaching. I took one of those uh, needles they use for yarn. You know, it's got an opening that's almost that big, you know. And I had this camel head puppet. And I said, now let's, what if we back the camel up on the other side of the room and take, get a running start at it? You know, are we going to get it through there? They were like, no, <laughs> you know, little five-year-old kids, right? No, it's not going to work. There's no way for that to happen. And Jesus is saying, even those that you consider to be specially blessed by God are not so specially blessed that they can just walk into heaven on the basis of their own stuff. And they're really confused now. They're like, what? Come back and say that again. Give me that one more time, Jesus. And, and who can be saved if that's the case? He says this, with man it's impossible to be saved, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. In other words, if you're God, you can save anybody. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, right? Doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, right? He can save them all. With God, anything is possible. But salvation, he is trying to teach them, doesn't come through human effort. It comes through the grace of God. But your stuff and whatever your attachments are, whether it's wealth or a relationship or something else, actually get in the way of you entering into salvation and experiencing it. Um, all the best stuff that humans have to offer doesn't add up to anything in God's economy. You take the richest person in the world, take Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or whoever it is that's the top of the, the Forbes 500, and you know how close they are to God if they don't have Jesus? No closer than you and I. All their money doesn't buy them any more status in God's economy. Why is that? Because God's the creator, so he's not impressed by the portion of creation they've managed to pile up. Right? He who flung the stars into existence is not going to be uh, wowed by your billion dollars, right? I mean, that's just not going to happen. Really? 
You think I'm going to be impressed by your, the fact that you're a billionaire? That's great. <laughs> clap, clap, clap. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, God is not impressed by that. He owns it all anyway. And Jesus is saying, all of your, you take the best, most wonderful human person without Jesus, and they add up to nothing. And Peter still doesn't quite understand, and I, I identify with Peter. You know, he's a guy that enters the, every room he goes into mouth first, okay? I identify with that. It's great, <laughs> okay? Shows there's hope for guys like me that talk and then think later. Um, but he says, he says, Jesus, we have lost, we've left everything to follow you. Remember when Peter called Jesus, uh, when Peter was called by Jesus, he and his buddies, uh, James and John and Andrew, you know, his brother Andrew and his buddies, James and John, they own a fishing business. And in fact, they've got guys working for them. It says they left the hired men with the nets and went and followed Jesus. Like, we gave up the family business here, Jesus. Um, is there going to be any reward for that? Uh, you know, we've been following you around in our sleeping in the same clothes every day for the last three years. Um, is there any reward for that? And he says, yes, there is. There's reward for that, Peter. Good question, Peter. There's reward for that. It just doesn't gain you any status with God. You need to do that as a form of obedience. And he says, look, I'll give you, I'll tell you what the reward is. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this day and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, when, and maybe we lose the impact of some of this in, in America, you know, where it's pretty easy to be a Christian uh, or coming out of... of uh, you know, non-Jewish families, as most of us do. But if you're a Jew who becomes a Christian, uh, particularly if you have an Orthodox family, uh, I have a friend over in Indianapolis who, when she became a Christian, her parents held a funeral, threw all her stuff in the casket and buried it like she was dead. When a Muslim a lot of places around the world becomes a Christian, they have a funeral with him in the casket. Because an honor killing takes them out. Christianity is costly. It will cost you everything you have, even your life. But you'll gain a hundredfold in this life and in the age to come, eternal life, Jesus says. Where do you get new fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers? Look around. You may be disappointed, but you're it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, one of the things I have loved about being a pastor um, is the fact that wherever I pastor, the church becomes my family. I went back to Iowa, hung out with some old friends uh, from my former ministry there yesterday, and just just visited and just enjoyed being with them. 
like I enjoy being with all of you. Um, but I have people over there and I have people here who have become like my parents, who have become my brothers, my sisters. Even though my home back in Indianapolis contains my relatives by blood, who are also my brothers and sisters and mother and father in Christ, which is a real blessing. But you're it, okay? You guys are the people that God promised that are the hundredfold blessing of following Jesus, that if it costs you your brother or sister or, or even your children to follow Jesus, so be it. It's worth it. You get them back in the church. Amen? Amen. All right. Good stuff. Um, and he says, but you also get persecution. In other words, it's not just all about the bennies. You're going to have some benefits to following Jesus, but there's going to be persecution. And even if it costs you your life, it's still worth it. Even if... Even if no one kills you for the sake of your faith, Christianity in its authentic variation, the authentic version of Christianity costs you your life every time. You have to give it up. And he says here, verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. What's he talking about? He's saying the ranking system in heaven is not like the ranking system here. Here you have to say things like, Your Honor, and Mr. President, and Sir, and uh, Yes, Sir, and this kind of stuff to people who outrank you by the world's standards. But guess what? In heaven, the rules are changed. And many who are first here will be last. And many who are last here... I mean, imagine this. You're following around a guy who is wearing all the clothes that he owns. Who claims to be not just the prophet of God, but to be God. Who gets crucified, which is the death of a slave. Who gets betrayed for the price of a slave. And yet who is raised again from the dead, proving that he is God. And what's Philippians say? God exalted him to the highest place, the right hand of the throne, and gave him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus, everyone would bow. Is that a reversal? That's a reversal. Amen. That is a reversal. Many who are last here will be first there. And so it's worth it. Now, uh, there's three things he's, or four things I think he's, he's trying to teach us in this passage. Number one, I think he's trying to teach us that you can't gauge a person's relationship to God on their status and wealth in the here and now. Is that clear to everybody? All right, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Um, number two, the treasures of this life can be a massive hindrance to experiencing the treasures of the next one. It can be a big hindrance because the, the person who gets in the way of you coming into the kingdom of God a lot of times turns out to be you uh, and that you are unwilling to give up the things that you value more than Jesus. And the treasures of this life can hinder you 
And when you value the gift more than the giver, you're in trouble because you stand to lose them both. Number three thing I think he's trying to teach us here is that the human ranking scale is not the one that God uses. God does not settle accounts on the 30th of the month, right? He settles accounts on the great day. And then we know each one shall receive recompense for what he has done, whether good or light, right? Um, and anything that we give up, God repays a hundredfold. Last thing, and I think this is most important. This is the most important thing. If you get nothing else out of this entire message, get this. That salvation is not the work of man. It is the, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. There's nothing a person can do to inherit eternal life. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't be good enough. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah says. All of us have done something just like this rich young man. What was his sin, by the way? Idolatry was his problem. He had a different God. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What was his God? His money. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Either love one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. Can't serve God and money. And this guy is doing that. And grace has to be the means of receiving forgiveness for our sin because it's the only one that will work. If God is holy and we are sinners, grace better come in somewhere or we're all going to hell. And God in his grace provides the death of his son to pay for our sin so that we do not have to be in hell. Hallelujah for that. Let me get just real serious here for a minute. We live in the wealthiest country in the world. We live, in fact, in the wealthiest country that there has ever been, bar none. Even the poorest people in, in America have a better standard of living on average than even kings had 100 years ago. Better access to medicine, better food, um, better uh, heat, better air conditioning, better transportation. We live, the, we live the best lives of virtually anybody the world has ever seen. And even though the economy at the moment stinks, it's only relative to what it used to be, right? Our unemployment rate is still better than Europe, and we've lost 5 million jobs. We live in the wealthiest country in the world. And because of that, there's a danger that creeps in to even Christians' lives of wanting to be like the rich young man and stick to our stuff and the acquisition and attainment of more stuff at the center of our life. But a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, right? 
you can only serve one master, and it had better be Jesus. Now, let me ask you this question. Has God done the impossible in your life? Has God stuck a camel through the needle? What I mean in that question is is this. Has God saved you from your sin so that you can enter his presence and live with him in eternity in heaven on the basis of your faith in the blood shed of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? If you have believed and accepted his payment for you in his death on the cross and his resurrection, then you, present tense, have eternal life and you shall never perish. But if not, I want to encourage you and invite you to not let today go by without settling that issue. How do you get forgiveness for your sins? Through the blood of Christ shed on the cross for you so that God's standard of holiness is met, not by you, but by by Jesus on your behalf. Settle that today, okay? And after that, if you're certain, like a lot of us here, that you will be with God when you die because Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin, then I want you to examine your heart, and I want you to practice what I'm calling the discipline of simplicity. Look at your heart. And and here's a question that's always good. Take a really long, careful look at how you spend your time, how you spend your money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And if you look at how you spend your time and how you spend your money, then that will tell you who the real God is in your life. And if it's anyone other than Jesus, they need to get dethroned. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have anything other than Jesus on the throne of your life, then you're a traitor. You hear me on that? You have betrayed the one who bought you if you have replaced him with anything else in your life, whether it's a car, whether it's a house, whether it's another person, even if it's your spouse. And I love my wife as good as anybody in this room. I, I, will tell, I stand next to nobody in my pursuit and love for my spouse. But as much as I love Karen and as much as she loves me, she is second, and I am second to Jesus. And it better be that way. It has to be that way. Otherwise, that person is hindering you from your relationship with Jesus. Okay, um, has to go. So here's, here's some things to look at, okay? After your time and your money, look at three A's. Look at your attachments, the things that control you, things like your job, your car payment, etc. attachments, right? Things that determine how you spend your life. Uh, look at your anxieties, the things that worry you the things that cause you stress. Um, and and look at, make a list of this stuff, okay? Because whatever worries you, whatever is attached to you, it's a good candidate for the God of your life. One more. Look at your ambitions. Look at what drives you. 
What motivates you? What are your, what's your big dream for how your life is going to turn out? You know, if your greatest ambition is to be CEO or whatever it is, you know, have a, have a car, you know, have that car, live, have a house in that neighborhood, whatever it is. Whatever your ambitions are, if they're not centered around Jesus, they're wrong. Jesus has to have first place in everything. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be simple people. That we would be utterly...